Well, I want to begin by welcoming you to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David, and I serve as a senior pastor here. And if you're a first-time guest with us, either here in the chapel or upstairs in the loft, we want you to know we're delighted to have you. Uh, if I can answer any or if we can answer any questions you have about the life of our church, I'd love for you to stop by the Connecting Point, which is located just outside your worship space. We also have a, a gift for you to thank you for being our guest today and hope you have felt a warm welcome here at, at First Methodist Mansfield. I'm excited to be here this morning, and I don't know if it's just because the sun is out or I've had too much coffee this morning, but I am... I'm really excited to be here. I hope you are as well. We are in the second week of a series that we started last weekend entitled Unlikely Heroes. And I said last week that when you hear that word hero, my guess is many of you associate that with where our modern culture has really taken the idea of hero, and that is to superheroes. So we probably have some superhero fans in here. Some of you probably went to go see the new Avengers movie that came out about a month ago. You may have seen it in the weeks since. I, I know many of you have because it grossed $120 million in its first weekend. It was the second highest grossing film uh, in history. The, the highest was the first Avengers movie that came out in 2012, which is why they made another one, and I bet they'll make another one. So be looking for that. Another movie will be coming. The first one made $1.5 billion dollars. So superheroes, the idea of a suit, that, that's kind of, that's something we like to hear about, but that's not what we're talking about in this series. We are talking about everyday, ordinary people just like you and I, but people who, because of the way in which they live their life, found themselves living a life of significance. And so what I want you to tap into as we move through this series, this is the second week, we're going to do five weeks of this, I want to tap into that desire you have within yourself to live a significant life. I am banking on the idea that that is something within you. I don't think you would be here unless you had that, unless there was at least some sense within you that you want to live a significant, meaningful life. I want to share with you an expression of that this morning. There's a book that I just finished this week called Resilience, and particularly for guys. Guys, if you haven't read a book in 10 years, okay, and you're thinking, I should read a book this summer, make it this one, okay? I want to encourage you to read this book. This is a book by Eric Greitens, a former Navy SEAL, and it's a collection of letters that he wrote to another former Navy SEAL who after coming back from his combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, found his life a complete wreck. And these are the, this is the wisdom that Eric is sharing with him, reminding him of what they had learned about resilience and living a significant life in their training to become Navy SEALs. I want to read you something he, he shares at the end of the book. He says, there will come a day when the lights go out one last time, a day when the work and the living and the loving is all done. No one knows for certain what lies beyond that day, but if you've lived well, you can hope to become part of a story that others are proud to tell. I don't know about you, but I hope that gets your blood pumping a little bit. As you think about your life and what your life is about and what you're investing your life in, that you are aware of the fact that, hey, there's a day when this life comes to an end, and at that end, you want to be able to say, I have lived my life well, and I am proud of the story that others might tell in the way that I have lived my life. These characters that we're looking at are all people who saw that dream fulfilled in their life. 
That's what we're talking about when we're talking about heroes. We're talking about unlikely heroes, people who saw that dream fulfilled in their life of giving their life to something that really mattered. Now, I said last week, some of these characters are going to be very familiar to you. We talked about King David last week. Many of you at least have heard part of David's story. You know about the young shepherd boy, David, who went out to a field of battle and met Goliath. You've probably heard that story. We talked about some other things last week. You can go back and listen to that online if you want to. But I also said some of these quick characters are going to be people you may have never heard of before. So in just a moment, I'm going to tell you the scripture. And some of you here are going to go, is that really in the Bible? It is, okay? It really is in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Esther chapter 4. Yes, there is a book of the Bible in, uh, named Esther. If you were a part of our Refresh Women's Group, you know this because I know you did a study on it several years ago. But Esther chapter 4, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible in the seat in front of you uh, here in the chapel. If you're upstairs in the loft, you can uh, go to the back of the room. There's a, some Bibles there on a cart for you. You can grab that Esther chapter 4. And since Esther, I'll let you find it, because again, I want to make sure you know that this is actually in the Bible, and I'm about to tell you. You're going to want to go back and read some of the stuff afterwards. Um, as you find that, since we're going to look at chapter 4, I need to tell you a little bit of background about this character who many of you have never heard of before. And i got to start by sharing with you a little bit of history. Now, if you're not a history buff, I mean, if you're someone who fell asleep in U.S. history when you were in, 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 and that just wasn't your thing, I promise this will only hurt for a minute, okay? So just, just stick with me for a moment. So King David, that's what we talked about last week. King David was the king during one of the great times in Israel's history. It actually wasn't the peak of Israel's history. That came about during the reign of his son Solomon. So during Solomon was when Israel was at its greatest strength in terms of its finances, its military. It was at its height during the time of Solomon. But during the time of uh, David's grandson, Rehoboam, Rehoboam. So any expectant parents in the room looking for a good biblical name? Rehoboam, that's, that's there. You might not wanna name your kid after this guy because during his reign, everything just went, it went bad, okay? So the unified kingdom of Israel during the reign of Rehoboam split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And one of the unintended consequences of that is that it weakened the military strength of Israel and it made it vulnerable to uh, th their neighbors. So in the northern kingdom, about 8th century B.C., again, history, this won't last too much longer. The, the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. Several hundred years later, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. When the Babylonians came in, the way in which they dealt with conquered people is they spread them out. So they forced the Israelites, many of them, to leave their homes, to leave the land of Israel, and, to, and they resettled them in other parts of the Babylonian empire to spread them out. The Babylonians eventually gave way to the Persians. Esther's story takes place during the reign of the Persian king Xerxes, who came to power in 486 BC. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. No more history. Okay, you're done with that. All right, so Esther. Esther was a Jewish orphan. She was a Jewish orphan who was living in the capital city of Susa during the reign of Xerxes. After uh, Esther's parents had died, we don't know what happened to her parents, Esther was taken in by her cousin Mordecai, who raised her as his own daughter. She was rescued from a life of, of total destruction by Mordecai's graciousness in bringing her into his home and raising her as his daughter. 
Uh, Esther chapter 1 begins with Xerxes. And what we learn about Xerxes is that Xerxes is a big fan of Xerxes. Okay, I mean, he just thinks he is the greatest thing in the world. And so as king of this huge empire, he decides to throw a seven-day party to celebrate Xerxes, okay? It's all about him. It's all about his wealth and his power and his splendor. And so he throws this huge party for all the royal officials in the capital city of Susa. And in the midst of this knockdown, just crazy, crazy party, the food and the wine and the celebration, Xerxes is hanging out with his buddies, just bragging about how great his life is as the king. And while he's talking to them, he begins to talk about the beauty of his wife, the queen, Vashti. And so he sends one of his servants to go summon the queen so that he can show off his wife to his buddies. Now she, when she receives this, she says no. Evidently Vashti has had enough of Xerxes and she doesn't want, so she says no, I'm not going to respond to your summons, which leads Xerxes to having a political fiasco on his hands. So what Xerxes does is he pulls together his advisors to help him figure out how to deal with his wife. Now, some of you men in the room are thinking, I need some advisors. That's what I need. <laughs> he pulls together his advisors to help deal with his wife. And what they tell him is this. This is in the Bible. I promise you. Go back and read Esther chapter 1. What they say to him is this. They say, Xerxes, if our wives find out that your wife isn't listening to you, we're going to have chaos on our hands. I mean, this whole thing is going to fall apart. This is the level of wisdom that comes out of when men get together, okay? This is, this is what they decide. You have to get rid of her because if the rest of the wives find out, everything's going to fall apart. And that's what, they, that's what he does. He gets rid of Vashti. Chapter 2, he begins a new search for a queen. And if this was today, this would absolutely be a reality show. He sends servants out to go find beautiful women to bring them to the capital city. Women are taken from their homes to be evaluated to see if they can be the next queen of this Persian empire. And long sensational story short, Esther's chosen with one catch. No one knows Esther's background. Because when Esther is taken from the home of Mordecai, this home that, es that Mordecai had provided for her, this new life, this new hope that had been given that was immediately taken away from her, when she is taken from that home, Mordecai tells her, don't tell anyone where you have come from. Don't tell anybody about your background because he's concerned about what might happen to her. So Esther becomes the queen of the Persian Empire, but she has a secret that nobody knows about. Nobody knows that she is, in fact, a Jew who is living in exile in the capital city of Susa because of all of these things that have happened to her people. Now, chapter 3, we meet a new character. The character's name is Haman, and what we learn about Haman is that Haman hated the Jews. And so Haman, a royal official of some power, comes to King Xerxes. He says, Xerxes, I'm going to pay a tribute to the royal treasury if you will let me take care of this problem that we have in the Persian Empire, if you will let me destroy the Jews. And Xerxes, not knowing that he has just married a Jewish orphan, tells Haman, do whatever you want. 
You take care of it in every way you want to. And so Haman sends out instructions to, to military officials throughout the empire, instructions on what they are to do on the day of his choosing to deal with the Jews who are living among them. That brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. When Mordecai, again, the cousin of Esther, learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Now, tearing of the clothes, putting on ashes and sackcloth, this is a physical expression of grief. That's what's happening here. Verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she, Esther, was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathok went out to Mordecai. In the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation. Which, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathok went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I want you to remember with me real quick who Esther is. Esther is an orphan. Esther is a young woman who at some point in her life lost both of her parents. We don't know how it happened, but we know that at some point in her life, she went through that experience of tragedy and grief. And Esther is also a woman who, after going through that experience, was rescued. She was someone who was given a new life and a new hope by a cousin who took her in as his own daughter and gave her hope for her future. But that life was cut short. That new home that had been created for her and made available to her was taken away from her when someone came and took her because she was a beautiful, vulnerable young girl, brought her into the king's palace, showering her with wealth and gifts, but completely isolating her from everyone she had ever known. And basically turning her into property for the king a beautiful showpiece for him as the new queen of his empire. And Esther was a woman, a young, vulnerable woman who had a secret. Now, some of you know what that's like. How many of y'all have a secret right now? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like to have a secret in your life. And if you happen to be there in your life right now, or if you can tap into that experience in your life, you know that the longer that you keep that secret, 
the greater the fear becomes that that secret will be revealed, right? And so it would be understandable for us to assume that in this moment, as she hears these words from Mordecai, she must have thought to herself, if I can just hold on for a little bit longer, if I can just make sure that nobody finds out, yes, there's terrible things happening around me. I don't know what's going what's to happen to Mordecai or to, to, the, to the Jews, who, the, the, peop- the people that I'm a part of. There's, there's all this stuff happening around me. But if maybe I can just hold on to my secret for a little bit longer, if I can keep the king from finding out who I really am, then maybe I, maybe, maybe I will be spared the destruction that seems to be coming. It would be understandable, wouldn't it? If Esther had thought something like that. But listen to what Esther says. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now let me share with you that that same verse, verse 16, just in a different translation. I want you to hear it in a slightly different way. The Common English Bible says it this way, If I am to die, then die I will. This is the response of the young, vulnerable girl the orphan who is growing up in a patriarchal society where she has absolutely no power, no authority for her own, this is how she responds to this thing that is happening around her. With great courage, she says, if I am to die, then die I will. Now, this next statement is totally self-evident. No one is going to be surprised here, but I want you to hear it. Heroes are people who take risks. Heroes take risks. Now, no one's sitting here today going, oh my gosh, that's a totally new thought. I never considered that before. Heroes take risks. That's, that's self-evident, right? That makes total sense. But I want, you to, I want you to think about this word risk for a moment. I don't know if you do this in your mind when you hear the word risk, but let me tell you what I do. When I hear the word risk, I immediately associate it with another word, and that word is reward. Does that, does that work for any of you? Do you when you hear the word risk, do you, do you think about Reward. Let me give you an expression of that. Some people who know me really well would describe me as a risk-averse person. And here's what that means. I don't think I have hit my midlife crisis yet, but when I do, I can guarantee you I will not buy a motorcycle, okay? That is something I am never going to do. I can guarantee you that you are never going to see the senior pastor driving around Mansfield on a motorcycle. No matter how cool they look, that's not going to be me. It's just, in my mind, when I think about the risk and I think about the potential reward, it doesn't make sense to me. It seems like an unnecessary risk when I'm driving 60 miles an hour. I like metal around me. I mean, protecting me. That just, it seems like an unnecessary risk. Nothing wrong with having a motorcycle. If you have one, good for you. Have fun. Doesn't make sense to me. I'm never going to buy a motorcycle. I will never 
on my 40th birthday or 50th birthday or say, whatever the number is, I will never uh, come to a point where I say, the way I would like to celebrate my birthday is I would like to jump out of an airplane today. That is never going to happen for me. I don't understand that. To me, it is enough of a risk to get on the airplane. <laughs> Why would you want to jump out of the airplane? That doesn't make any sense. It seems like an unnecessary risk when the plane can, in fact, land on its own. Home. That doesn't make sense to me. I will never bungee jump. I will never jump off a cliff into it. And I, I'm not going to do those kinds of things because they seem to be unnecessary risks. Now, what do I mean when I say it's an unnecessary risk? What I mean is when I think about the risk and I think about the reward, I don't value the reward greater than I value the risk. Are you with me? I make a natural, an immediate association between the risk and the potential reward. And what I want to suggest to you is I think we all do this. I think we all do this. I think human beings naturally, when they think about risks, we immediately think about the reward. And so sometimes we do take the risk. Sometimes we see a risk that may be this high. But we also see the reward that may be just a little bit higher. And so we say, you know what? I'm going to do it. Because the potential payoff, the potential reward is dramatic enough that I'm willing to take that risk. Or sometimes we look at the risk that may be this high and we look at this massive reward. And we say, well, that's obvious. I have to move in that direction because the reward is so great. The payoff is so great that i got to go in that particular direction in that particular direction. And we do this all day long, every single day. We think about risks and we think about the reward. We think about the risk of driving our car to work. And we think about the reward of getting there without having to walk and without having to sweat and all that kind of, and we make a decision, right? We look at the risk and we look at the reward. So it's not enough to say that a hero is someone who takes a risk because we all take risks every single day. And anyone is capable of taking a risk. That doesn't make anybody special to take a risk. Anybody can do that. Here's what a hero does. A hero takes a risk with no concern for the reward. A hero takes a risk for no concern for the reward. A hero risks because they recognize that in the process of taking that risk, they are investing their life in something that is more meaningful, more significant, more long-lasting than their own life. They're investing themselves in something that is, that is beyond the potential reward that they might receive. They are risking, they are sacrificing, they are giving themselves to something that is bigger than their own life. That's what it means to be a hero. It's about taking a risk, but it's taking risks with no concern for the reward. Let me give you an expression of that. So this week, my wife and I went to my son's kindergarten uh, awards ceremony, which is a big deal, by the way, if you've not been to one of these things. It's a, it's a big deal. Evidently, kindergarten is really, really hard to get through, and so you've got to... <laughs> 
So they call every single kid's name out. And I mean, some of these kids are dressed up real spiffy and stuff. And there are more cameras there than you've ever seen in your... I mean, if, if you're a celebrity, maybe you're used to this and you have paparazzi that chase you. But my kid's not used to that. You know, it, but that's, that's, that's what happens. We are so excited about these kids who have, who have finished kindergarten. And then you go back to the classroom with your child and with the other kids in his classroom and all the other parents who are all there you know, for the kindergarten awards ceremony. And the, and the teacher shares with you a slideshow of every single picture that she has taken over the course of the school year. I mean, but, but you're okay with that because your kid's in the pictures, right? Like, I mean, you're not really paying attention when all the other kids are up there. But then, then there's your kid, and you're really excited. You know, you get to see all the things that they've been doing over the course of this year. Oh, there's him in his pajamas for pajama day. And the, there's him in, uh, dressed up as Charlie Brown for storybook character day. And the, there's him having fun with all his friends and him on the playground. You know, all this kind of stuff. You're pretty very excited about it and seeing all these pictures. And then the kid kindergarten teacher gets up at the end of this. First year kindergarten teacher. Keep this in mind, okay? She gets up and there with her kids before her, uh, kids who are pretty excited about getting a donut because that's what she's promised them at the end of the party and that's why they're sitting still. And all the parents who are crowded into this classroom. And this is what this first year kindergarten teacher says to us. She says, first, I just want to thank you parents for giving me the honor of just sharing this year with your kids. We've had so much fun. and, And then her lip begins to quiver as she says, I am going to miss my little love bugs. Now, here's what I'm thinking as I'm sitting there. I'm thinking I have one kindergarten kid in my house. She has 21 kindergarten kids in her classroom. And so when she says with emotion, I'm going to miss my little love bugs, I'm thinking, really? Really? I mean, have you spent time with six-year-olds? We had three in our house on Saturday. I thought I was going to go crazy. It was true. She has 21 in her class, first-year kindergarten teacher. And she is expressing emotion because she's going to miss these kids that she's shared life with. Now, some of you I know, when you're thinking to yourself, if there is a hell, it's got to be a kindergarten teacher, right? <laughs> it's okay. We're among friends. You can admit it, right? You would go crazy. You would go absolutely insane. And yet she is there expressing that emotion. I'm going to miss these kids. Why? <laughs> why? You know why? Because she's investing her life in something that is bigger than her life. Because she's a hero. She's a hero. She's someone who, like many of you, are sacrificing for something that is going to outlive you. You are people who are living according to, to what I just read to you from this book. People who know that there will be a day when the lights go out, when the work and the living and the loving is all done, and you have this desire to live your life well, to be a part of a story that others will be proud to tell, and you are investing yourself in something that is bigger than yourself. If you are under the impression that following Jesus is about the reward, you are missing something. You've missed something huge. Following Jesus is about taking risks. 
It's about taking risks. It's about taking seriously the one who says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and you have to die to you to give your life to something that is bigger than you. And I hope that for some of you, I hope you hear that as a challenge in your life. I hope you, you ask yourself, what is the natural next question? What am I risking for without concern for reward? Who am I willing to risk for in my life without concern for reward? But for some of you, what you need to hear is not a word of challenge, but a word of affirmation. Because while no one has said it to you recently, what you need to hear today is that you're a hero. Because you're investing your life in things that are bigger than your life. You're risking, not for the sake of the substantial reward that you may receive down the road, but because you want your life to matter. And so if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're someone who either in their vocation or just in who they are is living, who you are is living this out, you are a hero. And you have begun to understand something so significant about this life of following Jesus, this thing that we can never forget, that it is not about the reward, it's about taking a risk. It's about taking a risk. So as you think about these words of Esther, if I am to die, then die I will. You think about this young girl who had no power, no authority, and yet put herself out there for the sake of everyone she might save, for the sake of saving lives. And as we think about coming to the table of Holy Communion and receiving the gifts of the broken body and the shed blood, I want you to hear these words from Paul. Philippians chapter 2, he says this, If you want to follow Jesus... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset. Think like Jesus, in other words, who, being in very nature God, he had everything, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, we confess to you today that we want our life to matter. Among all the chaos and busyness of our life, all the different directions we end up heading when we find ourselves confused and don't know really which way to go, there, there is still that flame within us, that fire within us, Lord, that says we don't want to waste these days. We know, Lord, all of us know that there will come a day when the lights go out, a day when the work and the living and the loving is all done, and we do, Lord, want to live well. We want to be part of a story that is worth telling to a generation that comes after us who will remember the, the faith of a, of a grandparent, the faith of an ancestor, 
who gave their life to something that was, that was worth giving their life to. And so, Lord, we can pray for, for nothing else than simply courage, courage to live like Esther lived, to be able to risk not because of what we may see as our reward, but to give our lives to something that, that really matters. And for all those, Lord, who are already doing that here among us, these brothers and sisters, I pray, even if they haven't heard it in a long time, Lord, I pray that your spirit would whisper into their hearts, you're a hero. You're a hero. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.